Tonight's episode of Colors of the Dark is brought to you by the new horror film, The Empty Space. Now premiering on streaming services like Tubi, Andrew Jara's new cosmic horror film, The Empty Space. The Empty Space tells the story of Amy Andrews, a woman dealing with grief and anxiety after the death of her boyfriend. When that boyfriend comes back, Amy will have to decide whether a miracle occurred or something far more sinister that could cost her her sanity and maybe even her entire existence. Andrew Jara is a Mexican-American director who has been making shorts and features for a while now, but The Empty Space is his biggest feat yet and has been praised by critics for its realistic, frightening depictions of mental illness that Andrew Jara drew from his own experience. Empty Space was released by Bayview Entertainment to rent or buy, but now you can watch it on streaming services such as Tubi, The Empty Space. Tonight's episode is brought to you by The Handyman Method by Nick Cutter, author of the best-selling novel The Troop, and Andrew F. Sullivan is on sale now. For fans of Black Mirror and The Amityville, this is a chilling domestic story of terror. Richard Chismar, best-selling author of Chasing the Bogeyman, says The Handyman Method is nightmare territory. Cutter and Sullivan have created a modern masterpiece. The Handyman Method by Nick Cutter and Andrew F. Sullivan is available wherever books are sold. I've read uh, one of his books that you're reading right now, The Deep, and we are both fans, right? Always love his stuff, so I'm excited for this one. Me too. And welcome to Fangoria's Colors of the Dark. I'm your co-host, Rebecca McKendry. And with me, back from his European tour, is Elric Kane. Oh How's it God, going? I've been back for so long. I know, I've but already this is forgotten. our first show back. You've only been back for like three weeks, I know, four but weeks. it took like three, three days to forget everything that has happened in my life. It is the great amnesia. Uh, except this, I am wearing, uh, for those, well, I'm wearing, you can see things now. If you are listening to this episode... You also have the ability to see this on YouTube for the first time ever. Y'all, we're going to YouTube. This is pretty weird. It's going to be um, kind of a Zoom recording for a couple of episodes while we figure out, you know, kind of how it goes to YouTube. And then after that, we might be in a studio looking like an actual show. But for again, me, is... even though this is horrifying to be on camera again, what is good about it is you get to see our T-shirts which is something you don't get to do anymore. So you have a great aquatic one. And uh, um, it's actually Dracula, oh, but I love this one because like it's, huh. no, it's one of the, here, I'm standing up. It's one of the um, original Dracula stage play oh. um, artwork, but I love it because they make him look so aquatic, which I always find really fascinating. So oh, I like yeah, that I figured that's, I'd wear it for tonight. I wonder if that's a little bit of the Demeter version that we'll get to see in a couple of weeks. Um, that was also my thought. Yeah, I see that. So yeah, I, the, the, reason the I brought aquatic this up Dracula. Is because I am wearing... The one thing I want. Profunda Rosa. Uh, yes. And so if you've listened to our Patreon, you already know. But it was very exciting. I went to this uh, the store, the Profunda Rosa, which should be on every horror fanatics like bucket list. And what, this is in Rome, right? right? In the middle of Rome. Uh, I had to like kind of go off on a little side exciting visit. And what's interesting, you wouldn't expect this horror store to be right in like, it's like kind of right around fashionista kind of show. It's not like buried the way Dark Dells is like on a, a strip of like that kind of stuff. This is 
right with mainstream stuff and i walked up to it and you see the uh the puppet from deep red like a like a kind of a toy version of that in the window and you go in and downstairs is this amazing tribute to argento which is just like a little museum it's interactive it's five bucks and you go down there for like you know 15 minutes and you get to walk through these fun little stage sets and then you come up and it's just a cool store with horror books uh you know uh paraphernalia all sorts of stuff but what what you know, excited me and you when we were talking about it was that the person running it is the great Luigi Cosi, you know, who made Star Crash and Contamination and so many Paganini horror, I believe, just a lot of crazy yeah. horror movies uh, and assisted Argento, I think, at times. Um, and he runs it. And and when I say that, it's not like he owns it. Like he's in the freaking store. Him and his wife are literally just sitting there all day and you get to have conversations with them. And it was it was pretty damn fun. And I got a book for you. Yes, I'm, I have it here. So it is Italian Giallo movies. Um, and then on the inside, he even got it signed to Rebecca from Luigi Corsi. So cool. It is so sweet. I, oh I my gosh. I truly didn't expect, like, I was going to go no matter what. I, know. I did not expect that he was going to be sitting there. And it took me a second. I was like, oh my God, this is so wild. So, you know, again, a lot of the books, the sad part, a lot of them amazing books, books I've never seen on subjects I've never seen. How's done. your Italian? Yeah, exactly. There was only about three or four that they had uh, turned into English. And I got one on the uh, same authors. I got one on Italian horror and got you the shallow one. So that was super cool. So there's lots of little things like that. I'm not going to, if you want to hear more about the trip, go to the Patreon. I, I I don't want to regale you guys with the uh, boring travel stories, but it was yeah. Uh, I'll be yeah, the horror stuff was fun. I just got back from my summer vacation where we did a camping trip up California and then back down, and so I went to the Winchester Mystery House, mm-hmm. the Santa Cruz Mystery Spot, and the Bigfoot Museum. Oh, I love Bigfoot. all of which were were pr- that we went to the one in Felton, California. All of which were really fun. Um, I think I enjoyed the Winchester Mystery Spot. Is it or, sorry, I'm all? combining them. Winchester Mystery House. It is there's a creepier version of it apparently there is like an actual like ghost tour that you can go on there which goes through the basement which i have to mm. assume is massive because the the house itself is like twenty thousand square feet some um it's huge and there's a lot like you see the rooms where people died you see the room where she died and then you go into her seance room which is pretty creepy and then there's just a lot of weird stuff like she sarah winchester the woman who designed the house she was obsessed with the number 13 so much so that like if a sconce like a like a chandelier went into her house um and it only had like 10 flutes on the side for light she would add three more um just because she was very superstitious that everything had to be the number 13 even like panes of glass and mirrors and windows it was that was kind of the wildest part a lot of spider web motifs around like she was it was clearly this gothic thing and um some of it was very much like her own superstition on ghosts. Like she had a bell tower that supposedly she would ring to like remove ghosts from the property. And so, hmm. you know, it, it was, I was touring it at 10 AM on a Sunday morning. So I can't say it was, you know, it wasn't like a, a haunted house, but there was definitely creepy stories in it. Okay. Well, yeah. Uh, that kind of gets you up to date on our summers. I will say we cannot start this episode without a massive uh, RIP to the goat of horror uh and oh, yeah. just one of the greatest filmmakers one of the greatest personalities in all of movies uh mr william freakin uh yep. passed away a couple of days ago just you know uh again 87 years old full life couldn't have had a fuller life so mad respect to him uh i think I, i've been to a couple of the, my favorite q a's with him but one with toby hooper where he was just it was all about texas chainsaw and how much he loved that film and how what he would do for toby and it was just one of the most touching conversations i've seen live and uh, you know mm-hmm. so if you haven't you know pay tribute watch one of his incredible movies i watched the hunted which i 
couldn't remember if I had seen, which was like one of his more recent ones with uh, Tommy yeah. Lee Jones and Benicio Del Toro. More of an action thriller, but it's it's a lot of fun, really well made. Um, Sorcerer, I really, and I mean, it's not well even made. a horror yeah. one, but yeah, that one, it's always been my favorite. Yeah, that's my favorite his. of his. And movie. I have Bug as well. Bug's that's great. another one that it was just so under-received because they marketed it as like a heavy horror film. This is probably like 2000 aughts it came out um, based on a Broadway play and they had marketed it as this like crazy horror film about bugs that burrow into your skin and it's not. It's about a man with PTSD and psychological issues. And it was a play. But yeah, and it was a long it's play. tight. Yeah. yeah, it was a really well-known play. So yeah, I love that one as he, well. He had what like, um, you know, uh, some of the greats had, which is just this like they're just, uh, it doesn't mean they're fearless in real life. But there's a fearlessness to the the topics and the movies that they just make these bold movies and do not care in the moment if they're going to be real received or not. Yep. But in the long run, they tend to do great. And he is, he really is one of the best. And there's so many deep cuts that if you start going through his filmography, I mean, I still like The Guardian. I liked it probably more and then like when it came out because it's probably a little goofier now. But uh, I think Cruising is actually one of the scariest Cruising's movies. Great. I think there's parts of that that are tr- it's truly unnerving. Um, you know, again, a, a great director. If you only know him for The Exorcist, um, there's so many other films there. That said, The Exorcist is incredible. Like, it, yeah, it's yeah. really one of the best. So um, massive respect to Mr. William Friedkin. Um, what a life. But yeah, so like we have a bunch of new movies we want to roll through because we have some really good guests. Uh, I feel I feel like we have to start just briefly because we kind of did our Patreon before our main show back and we both got a chance to see Talk to Me Early, but it hadn't come out yeah. yet. And like for me, it's it's I think it's going to be my my like horror film of the year. I just for me, the really? kind of things I love in a movie, mm-hmm. I love to be surprised. And I love like when YouTubers in this case, you know, these were YouTubing brothers, very creative. They take a big swing like this and it just it's it surprised me, especially emotionally. I think it's really well connected emotionally by the end of the film. It does something different, you know, in this kind of uh, a gimmick. I loved because that's what I was worried about is it was a gimmick is it's just, you know, teens grab a hand and then suddenly, you know, they're possessed by a ghost or something. There could there could be a pretty like low rent version of that. But this was heavy. It was really emotionally connected. And the entire what kept me really fascinated is how well they wove that it's a symbolism of drugs. Mm. It's very much like this giant allegory for party drugs and how you're doing them socially and it's fun and you're recording each other as how fucked up you are and then gradually you're doing it by yourself and then more and more and you're getting further removed from your friend group like it was very much this and it's got a drug subplot with it as well where it's all about one of the characters has previously used drugs and so when things start happening to her some of the other people are blaming her prior drug use for these things and yeah like that for me was it it just had this really deep level quality to it and and it did that great thing that you know that it follows also did the thing where it just leaves you wanting more you don't get all the answers Mm -hmm. you have all these things that you desire to know and it makes the smart choice to go no we're going to give you just enough to keep you very excited like you know i'm not going to know exactly what the hand is you'll have some ideas of what the hand could be uh but i did see today and i remember afterwards going man this is one of the first horror films in a long time where i would love a sequel and i'm like well yeah a24 don't do sequels really and then today the news is talk to me too talk to me i'm into it Um, i'm down 
No, this is, and I remember you saying that after It Follows, yeah. because It Follows did the same thing where it was just like, it's not explaining a damn thing. And I remember you afterwards being like, It Follows too. I yeah. need it. And of I course, I would we watch it if it came 10 years later. I think there's, oh, yeah. I think the, the, you don't need the same characters in that one. I think it's much more about the thing itself. The curse mm-hmm. is just such an easily repeatable. You could even do it in uh, Tokyo. Like you could set the I feel, Follows in a different country, you know? So that's what I feel about talk to me is that I would not use these same characters again. Yeah. Um, I, I would not revisit them and see, you know, Oh, the hands back 10 years later, I would do what the, the denouement of this first film did where it takes it and puts it somewhere yeah. else and then starts with a new storyline. I would definitely do that because not that I didn't like these characters, but I felt like, you know, That's their story. I, I spent yeah. my time with them. Yeah, no, we saw totally, their story. Totally. And th- their emotional story ended. I, I think the, the other danger is don't, do a history of the hand don't do a prequel version oh my god no like that would run i mean you can give little tips more but hey that's not our job there's a writer's strike so (laughs) we can't give our ideas away for free you get nothing you get nothing but but i i really loved it i thought it was very electric and 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 it is still like all good horror films you know you think you live in a vacuum sometimes everyone loves it it's great it's like uh i was looking at some of the people i really like on letterboxd a couple of them really didn't like it and i was like a couple of my students because i just finished my horror production class at usc where i have like 20 diehard horror fans who this is what they want to do for a living in the class i had students not like it that were just like i don't get it i don't know it wasn't scary i didn't dig it like if you only get uniformly it's rare that you get uniform it's like you always want something that rubs somebody as the best thing ever and somebody else is just like what i don't like it and to me that's a great place to be so very excited about that one hopefully everyone catches up to it it did pretty well but it didn't do as well as some of these other sequels that came out i think um you know a24 i mean as far as their horror stuff goes i mean everything everywhere all at once is going to be their biggest film to date but i think that their biggest horror one so far is hereditary and i feel like this is now second in line underneath it so i mean it did in what limited theatrical release that it did do i feel like they've made enough that they were immediately like fuck let's green light a sequel right now so what i hope it does is um not that i have not enjoyed the a24 nothing happens and then everything happens in the last 10 minutes model i know you love them i know but like when i'm looking at things like lamb and men i enjoy those but what i really liked about talk to me was it didn't feel like that like, well, it, I will say it that it was, had pacing. Well, I think that I mean part of the difference though is because we did see the Q and A, and the guy from A twenty four said we did not make this movie. It was a negative. Yeah, picture, he went to, yeah, he like went to Sundance. It and was like we need this movie, so it spoke yeah. to them. It has a lot of the similar hallmarks. I, I like. I don't feel Hereditary isn't a particularly slow movie, and even the witch mm-hmm. moves at a at a pace that it. But the know. witch was a pickup as well. Yeah, interesting. Okay, they didn't make the witch. I feel like that. I'm ninety nine percent sure that that was another where it was made by a private production company, and then A twenty four picked it up for distribution. If you would like this conversation to continue, go back a couple months where we did an A twenty four drafter. Or something where we went through yes uh, we did we ranked our favorite films. a24 yeah. films yeah we did all their genre films even ones that we'd never heard of before like the weird space one with mia goth there were, yeah oh seen. that one i liked highlight but there was a yeah, couple i remember there was like one i had never even seen an image like i was <laughs> like i still need to look at that one up i think it was like a noir one anyway yeah that, that's our a24 plug at start uh so we have so- our films let's do it yeah, continuing with polarizing stuff, I'm going to jump into um, some of my other giant, you know, movies of the summer. Haunted Mansion movie. Okay. So no one was, I, I I was so excited for this. Like I, same as I did with the Meg, where it's like releasing on Thursday at noon, me and the kids had tickets. We were first in the theater. I'm right there, ready to go. 
Um, and from the trailer, I was so excited because it looked like it was sticking more closely to the ride. And the prior Haunted Mansion movie, the Eddie Murphy one, um, you know, my kids enjoy it. I didn't, I never really connected with it a lot. It had some connections to the ride, but it was very much doing its own thing. This felt like it was really using the mythology of the ride. To the degree that it sometimes really muddied the movie and that became kind of the biggest critical thing of it too, is there was just so much going on of a ghost will follow you home and we have 99.9 or 999 haunts here and, you know, kind of exploring all the different many of them, like it made the movie feel kind of muddy. Mm. That said... I fucking loved it. And my kids loved it. And this isn't a ringing endorsement that you will love it. I loved it because I love the ride. And that's what a lot of the movie was. It was a lot of wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Look what we did here. Hey, remember that little thing in the ride? Hey, we, we worked that into the background. And so it was just a lot of kind of winking at just diehard haunted mansion fans like myself. Um, but that said, I had a really good time with it. Don't go because you think you're going to see Jared Leto. He was like nowhere in this movie. He was very CG'd and his voice mm. didn't sound like his voice. And um, yeah, I had, I've definitely talked to people who were like, it's not good, but I had a blast with it. So if you're a fan of the ride, Haunted Mansion movie. I mean, I love the ride. It's my favorite thing at Disneyland, but I think I could wait till streaming for this just to like, you know. I have a feeling it will go. I I kept wondering why the, Disney would release a Haunted Mansion movie during the summer. I mean, trying to get the summer blockbuster, but the movie itself just feels like it would lend itself to Halloween. And so my gut is that they did it during July so that they can do a big release to streaming for Halloween uh, season. So sense, yeah. That's I don't know that for a fact. That's just me pontificating, but we'll see how it goes. Um, yeah, the but studios that said, better hold on to their content because they might not yeah. have much content left. Heard that. Yeah. Um, so, but I will say what I did like about this is it's gateway horror. Mm. Like, we do not have a lot of gateway horror right now. And so, being able to take my kids into a PG 13 film that has some scary sequences, like, it's still definitely got some pretty messed up sequences and having them get that moment of fear, but then it's not going to push it too far. Like it was just a beautiful gateway. Yeah. Kids uh, gateway is talk to me. is not a gateway horror, not uh, a gateway horror. It's little, no. My, it's little Marnie, flash insert yeah. to society is one of the most gruesome things I've seen wow. in a while, but I'm pretty sure it's a society reference. It's pretty amazing. Uh, it seemed like it. Yeah. No, my daughter, when it, she asked that night that, um, it, that I was going to the, the early screening with you, she was like, can I come? Cause I had just taken her to see the shark exploitation documentary with me the prior night and i was like i don't think you should see this one honey and i was really glad i didn't yeah, take her it's, um it's but lot. haunted mansion this is like this will probably be my kid's favorite film of the summer well in terms of movies that make so much money i just couldn't even believe it insidious five the red door uh this is directed by patrick wilson the star of the much of the franchise coming back to it and i had no desire to see this in the theater like i just didn't really register with me the reviews were very middling and so i just didn't see it and then the day it came to streaming i was excited suddenly because i was like you know what i i love this franchise overall the last couple have been kind of misfire but still fun um and i was just curious what it would be and it's interesting it, it's 10 years later uh and you know uh him and his son had both been hypnotized back in the day to eliminate all of this stuff from their life and it picks up where basically he's not no longer married to his wife he's a divorcee oh, wow. yeah it's really weird it was it really threw that's me that's a baller yeah, move yeah like and she's in it they're all at a funeral 
uh, and they're separated. His mom's just died. So it, it opens where his mom has now passed. Uh, and she's the one who hypnotized them and got rid of their That's Barbara Hershey's, Barbara Hershey's character? character. Yeah. So she's gone. Yeah. There's a photo of her and he, but here's the reason they're se- separated. And it's kind of sad it is that because they gave this, um, did this hypnotism, huge chunks are missing for his character and the son. The son is now the same actor, which was really cool as the boy in the first. And now he's going to college. And so, I actually really weirdly liked this movie as a family drama. Didn't care for it much as a horror. I thought it was okay. There's a couple good horror beats. There's a really scary like jump scare early on. But as a closing of a story that you've got a lot of time invested in, and I think maybe that's what Patrick Wilson wanted to do. Uh, I think somebody said it's, you know, it's like his ordinary people or something, which I wouldn't go that far, but but it is about that. It's about <laughs> like feeling, that. you know, it's like a little, that's a little. Ordinary much. people is the horror. Yeah, people. It might be a little much for this, but, but it is, I do think the, uh, you can see that it's really about a father and son who, are totally strange now. They don't don't even. He's not even a very nice person, the Patrick Wilson character. But then you quickly start to go, oh, it's probably because huge parts of his life were chunks. He doesn't remember going psycho in part two. Like he doesn't remember becoming that way, and so he has no idea. But something from the other uh, other side is now appearing to him in his life so basically the fractions of the memories are starting to affect both of them and the mm-hmm. son is at art school do- doing paintings and seeing it come through and so it's like two parallel storylines the whole movie uh and there's some you know there's some cool stuff again interesting that it made so much money it, it's, it's like a very interesting like and i mean i didn't know this till a couple days ago and i looked up this is like the number one horror film of the year so far like financially i heard that. and i was like whoa what and and so it just shows it has legs um you know and i'm glad it's not just a reboot or saying like a lot of blumhouse's recent have been these big reboots of big and that's far well technically exciting. it still is kind of the ip but, but, like that but has it's become an original Blumhouse's ip which is a cool like at least yeah it's, cool. it's still an original ip um but yeah i, I liked it. i like again i think it's worth watching on vod again don't expect necessarily the scariest of the series but there was some good stuff in it. and if you like the story good closer Excellent. Okay, well, I am going to take us, I will say quickly, because we're going to talk about this in the second half when we bring in our shark um, experts. I saw Meg to the Trench, um, which I unapologetically thought was a blast. It was not, you know, the greatest movie ever made. I wouldn't call it particularly smart. If you're going in expecting full Ben Wheatley, it's not full Ben Wheatley. It's not Kill List, Mm. y'all. It's very much a giant, giant shark movie. But that said, I had a blast. My kids had a blast. Another really good gateway hard, but we'll get deeper into that one in the second half. Um, where I will take us from here, I watched Hypnotic. Um, this one just came to oh, Amazon. Yeah, Ben Affleck. This is Robert Rodriguez's uh-huh. new one. And it's I had seen it kind of listed as like horror action and it's got horror notes. I'm going to call it horror adjacent, like the opening, the first couple of like the first act feels really horror. And then it kind of goes off on a different tangent and gets really far away from that and goes far more sci fi and cerebral. I love the first act after that. It lost me a little bit. So the setup of this is that um, this this guy is investigating. Um, well, he's a cop. He's a detective. And his daughter has gone missing. And so that happened a while ago. You think he's kind of, you know, he still hasn't recovered from it. But there is this series of murders happening around him that have these really mind-bending effects, like things that couldn't happen. Um, people just, you know, like a cop just randomly out of the blue start shooting people and just things that just seem completely completely out of place. And then suddenly at one of the crime scenes, he's investigating a bank um, robbery, something that he finds connects the crimes back to his missing daughter. And at that point I was like, 
fuck yeah, I'm hooked. And then you realize, and this is taking you right up to where I'd say kind of the the first act shifts just a bit and it really picks up speed. You realize that there are um that there's a pusher element to it, that it's the idea that if I tell you something, you're going to immediately believe it to be true. Um, and you learn this like 15 minutes into the movie, so it's not a huge plot twist, but the idea of that if I was to suddenly say, go downstairs and get a glass of water, Elric, that you would immediately do it because I have that capability. And that comes into play really early. And then it continues for about another 20 minutes and I loved it. And then it starts kind of becoming, and it gets trippy, like a snake eating its own tail where it's constantly reinventing what you think you've seen. And that's where I started getting confused. And that's what most of the critics that I read said the same, like, you know, the hook at the beginning, like the serial killer. And it was like, good. And then once you started kind of unraveling everything, it fell apart. Some there were moments of this film that I absolutely loved. And then once I the ending didn't hit very well for me, but there were moments in the the first half that I thought were really, really cool. I don't think it did very well because it was at some point supposed to do a theatrical, I believe. Mm-hmm. And then it just kind of ended up like I just saw it pop up on Amazon one day. And I don't think this did a theatrical. If it did, it was very limited. Mm-hmm. But it's there. Robert Rodriguez, I will still watch anything that he directs. And Ben Affleck was good in it. So mm-hmm. hypnotic. If you're into your weird kind of mind bendery sci-fi this might be your jam. Yeah, it looked Inception-y in the trailer, I remember. It's very Inception-y. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I have a good, I have a slasher for people, a new one, uh, Screenbox Original, that I was very curious by because it's, you know, I'm always curious to see the slasher format in a different country. And this is Lithuania, which I don't even know oh. if I've seen a Lithuanian uh, horror film. But You just piqued my interest. Yeah, Lithuanian horror, brand new on the uh, app called We Might Hurt Each Other. That's the English name that I started under. Then when I looked it up, it was coming up under Pensive. Uh, but so brand new. It's the We Might Hurt Each Other is a damn good title. Yeah, I would uh, never go with Pensive. Yeah, Pensive is a little weird. Uh, Jonas Truckmans. Anyway, this one, it opens. I mean, it's very slickly made. It's not a low budget film. It feels like a slick like Hollywood slasher in a lot of ways. It's uh, it's graduation day at the school in Lithuania. Um, and, uh, you know, all the same types of people, really. It's all the same types we'd expect. But the difference is the main jock guy who's going to be drafted to the NBA, he has organized a massive party for everyone. And at the last second, the house he's going to rent for it has fallen through. And there's this quiet, more interior character who wasn't going to go to the party. And his mom's a real estate person. And he hears about a house she's trying to sell that's vacant. And the deal falls through. So he kind of hears that and basically tells them all I have the place so he can be the hero for a moment so all these kids and we're talking like you know 30 something more uh graduating seniors all go to this uh cottage in the middle of nowhere and they're really going far out there and they don't know where it is they think he knows what it is uh and he doesn't he gets out there and this is where it's interesting for for a beat it's um it turns out it's uh, it used to be along to this artist and so there's all this folk car art like all these wooden statues with their, that are covering their faces so it's super eerie straight away it's more like a folk horror movie and they're everywhere and so this and and then it's one of this one girl who's like the arty girl she's like oh yeah he was a famous artist went crazy and killed his family <laughs> like of course uh and they're all kind of joking about it and no one's taking it seriously they start having their parties and the techno's hitting and and uh the biggest jock guy is like uh, he's like we well, yeah, don't have any fire and he's like well whatever let's cut up one of the statues and you're just like oh that's not a good idea and so they cut up a statue and then stuff starts getting weird like you can't tell if it's a slasher for a beat or if it is folk art because there's a couple weird things with the statues but basically a guy shows up with a mask very jason-esque like and 
probably he's the artist, I would assume. But they don't go into much more, pl- like the buildup is a lot. And once the slashing begins, it's just a kind of unrelenting slasher. And at the, at the first, it does the, there's a couple kills quietly where not everyone sees. But then it just kind of goes to town. And right in the middle, there's a great sequence. I won't, it doesn't really matter spoiling because it's fun how they do it. They're just like all hiding from the killer in the house. You're like all standing next to each other, looking out the window and fuck it, he comes in anyway, and it's all on. So it's not like you're getting to hide. It's just like a slasher going for it. Kind of like the Chainsaw Massacre scene of the new one where he's in the bus. It, it reminded me of that. Yeah. It has some really cool stuff. It's well-made. It's slick. It takes a character shift in the last act that I really didn't like emotionally. That I was just like, oh, it felt like it came too soon. And it took me, it personally took me out. That said, at the end, it was kind of the point of the movie. Uh, so I don't want to, you know, I won't ruin that for you guys. But I think people will dig it. I think it, I think it's a good pickup for Screenbox because it's, you know, it just illuminates that these kind of movies are being made everywhere. So um, I thought it was pretty interesting. Uh, worth worth a check. So that is, we might hurt each other. Now on Screenbox. It's on the Screenbox. Okay, I'm gonna go to my smaller indie. I didn't know this film existed, but found it streaming, and then I'll jump back to kind of my my cool big TV series of the summer. Um, this is Gatlop Game of Hell which is currently on Tubi. So this one was definitely not on my radar until one of my students was like, you need to watch this. You're going to love it. 2022 film directed by Alberto Belli. Never heard of him. Never heard of any of his prior works. Was not familiar with anybody who was in the movie, but it was clearly shot in LA because it is very much a movie about LA. And it's hilarious. Mm. The whole setup is that A group of old friends, they've known each other for a really long time, but they have not hung out within the past couple of years. Like they, two of them got married, you know, some of them got these big careers. One of them's kind of a movie star now. They've definitely drifted apart. But the one who got married is now going through this really heavy, bad divorce. And so the group of friends have decided to get together for this one night. They're going to drink and they're going to do what they used to do, which was play board games. And one of the friends has found this like somewhere from Europe. It was like a Swedish board game that no one's ever heard of. And it was the only copy of it on eBay and no one's ever heard of it before. And so he purchases it for them to play that night. And it is called Gatlop. And uh, so they start playing and you get from the beginning that there is certain amounts of not drama, but there's background between some of the characters. Like some of them have hooked up before and some of them had crushes on other people and things like that. Um, But as they start playing the game, it becomes kind of like a horror version of Jumanji Hmm. where things start happening and it's telling them to do things like it'll just say, like, hold hands with the person on your left, but then they won't be able to stop. And it starts kind of controlling their world. And it's real subtle at first. And then it keeps going from there. It is hilarious. I loved this. I never it definitely goes horror at times it never goes full horror like there's no massacre coming but it's definitely got some moments where they're pushing the gore they're pushing the scares things like that really funny and what struck me the most about this one was how well written it was i watch a lot of tubi horror and a lot of it kind of being the directed tubi horror some of it's kind of hit or miss but this one was just really clever in its delivery hit a lot of really nice notes for me. So I definitely wanted to give it some love. Gatlop Game of Hell. Okay. Um, I I, th- I feel like I heard about it at a festival a long time ago, but maybe I'm thinking of something else. Um, I saw a triple feature of Trips with Psychos, but I'm going to do two of them together quickly because they kind of speak to each other. And I'm not going to go deep. Uh, first was 
uh, Sympathy for the Devil, which is the new mm-hmm. kind of action-y film uh, set in Vegas with uh, Nick Cage and Joel Kinnaman, where the I was sure the advertising for this was Nick Cage plays the devil. And I told you. I swear I've heard I that. I swear I too. read that, heard it. Yeah. And unfortunately for me, it mean, meant everything until the last two minutes of this movie was I, I was literally waiting for him to be the devil, for him to reveal, actually, I'm the devil. Like the whole movie. Like, because the movie lines up to be that. Like, you, it could be that at any moment. Now, forgetting that. For all of you listening, you can now have a pure experience with this movie. Uh, I, I actually rather like this movie. Uh, Joel Kinnaman uh, is well cast. He's he's like this normal guy. He's trying to get to his wife is having a baby. He's trying to get to the hospital in Vegas. He's driving through the town. He gets into the parking lot and he kind of in his rearview mirror he sees Nick Cage in total Nick Cage form. He's got like red dyed hair and a nice like Vegas leather jacket. He's smoking. And before he can get out of his car, he just turns around and he's in the back of the car. He's just entered and he says pulls out a gun and says you're gonna drive me somewhere and Joel Kim is like I need to get inside because my wife he's like nope you're gonna drive me somewhere and it becomes a road movie between these two guys uh I'm not gonna say much about it because there's obviously a mystery that is developing from the start to end between them and why this is happening in terms of what is Nick Cage character motivation but the reason it's worth watching is there's like a 15 to 20 minute sequence in the middle of this movie or towards yeah towards the middle in a diner that is just fucking awesome and pure cage like uncut his character gets to go he takes over a diner and he goes to town and it's just it's really funny it's it's great the well the way it's shot is great it's just it's it's the rest of it is good because it's two person driving around talking kind of movie collateral and and films like that uh but this one part of the film made it worth watching to me um and i think cage is doing really good work and i as you know i'm a big fan i don't watch his direct Mm -hmm. tv type stuff almost ever not a diss on that i just don't watch it because it doesn't grab me i think this is a step above that stuff so i think it's it is worth watching and the reason i'm pairing it with something is because it's basically the structurally the exact same thing but a very different movie um i watched last night the pa- i didn't realize that uh carter smith who we had just had on the show had a second movie Cheers. yeah i didn't know he yep. had another film and i l- it just came out yeah but i mean two films this year it's look here's the thing i realized i was writing down because as i was watching it and i've been thinking about these two films and the one he made that i mentioned on the show uh the one that has the boy's name in it the bug life or it's yeah, bugs the, the and the boy's name. I can't remember but the name of it either. The thing I like about his films, it's not just the movies or the story. There's something in the way things look. The cars are broken down. The houses are crumbling. Like he, he obviously goes out of his way to set his films in these worlds. And I find that to be, on a directing level, I really think he's a great underappreciated right now working director. Uh, and just this one cemented it for me. I, this I really enjoyed this film uh, with, with one of my favorite working actors right now, Mr. Smile himself, Kyle Goldner, who is uh, literally just on a roll of like three or four yeah. really good roles, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, so this is, uh, it opens at a, like a, you know, kind of almost like a cartoonish uh, uh, hamburger joint, which hasn't opened yet. Uh, three people are working there. One guy's a total dick. Carl Goldner character is completely quiet, just mopping the floor, doesn't talk to anyone. Moody. And then this guy who's great, uh, the lead is Johnny Berktold. And he's like the quiet, passive guy. It doesn't really, you know, talk to people. You have asshole boss guy comes in and, and tells the quiet guy, I'm thinking about giving you a, a leg up here. And then the boss goes back to watching porn in the back. He's that kind of guy. And the other young guy comes out and just starts bullying the main character and, and really treating him like shit and makes him eat this old hamburger just to impress his girlfriend. It's just kind of a grotesque bullying kind of scene. And the whole time Golner's just watching it, you know, in the background. 
And I'm going to go, if you don't want to hear anything about this movie, but this is how you can get into this movie. It's hard to sell this movie without me going up to this. But Colin Goldner just walks outside. The camera tracks with him, uh, stalks him, follows him to his car. He gets a shotgun. He comes in and he just shoots the bully, blows him away, blows away his girlfriend. And wow. then blows away the bu- just kills everyone. And then looks at the the kind of quiet guy and goes, all right, get in the car. You're coming with me. I'm going to I'm gonna try to teach you something about your life. You're too fucking passive. And it becomes this like hostage drama way so kind of like the other movie where he's trying to change this guy's life trying to help him see but the problem is the kyle golner character is so essentially fucked up it's quite a sad character by the end there's some really interesting beats you learn about them but he's so fucked up you know he's the one who really should have probably needed to learn something it's on a character level some of the things they do together it's just one day it's the one day they're spending together driving after committing a homicide and I, I really liked it. I, I, the very end, like the last few minutes, a little generic, you know, compared to if it had ended a little differently, I probably would have been like, holy shit. But up until then, it's a really worthwhile watching uh, film. And I, like I said, I think Carter Smith does a really good job uh, directing it. And mm-hmm. like, you know, I, I literally wrote to Gal Goldner after after seeing it. I just said, there is no more thunder left because you are stealing all of it, man. Like I've seen like four movies in a row where he is the best thing going right now. Mm-hmm. I, a lot of people probably only seen him in Smile. But I'm telling you, some of the other movies uh, I've seen him in lately, it just shows that he is like trying to get interesting roles like you, yep. indie films and stuff. He's he's just killing it. So uh, very excited to keep seeing him grow. But it was funny to see these two films back to back because structurally they're very similar to people driving together, learning about each other, but their execution is opposite. So but I, I recommend both of them. They're fun. Um, well, I'm going to take us to a very different thing. Okay. I am going to take us to the horrors of Dolores Roach, okay. which um, this is a TV show that is now running on Amazon. And I had a, like a connection with this because many, many years ago, this is probably close to 10, maybe eight years ago now, I was doing consulting for a studio and I can't say which one because I signed like a book of NDAs. But part of my consulting job with them was I was listening to all of these different fiction podcasts and I was making recommend, I was basically doing coverage on fiction podcasts, trying to figure out which ones they might want to pick up the IP from, like which ones did I think had potential to be moved into like a TV or a film version. And so at the time when I was doing that, I had listened to the Horrors of Dolores Roach podcast and I had like glowed about it. Absolutely loved it. The studio wasn't interested in that particular one, but other one was because it got picked up by Amazon and became, um, I believe it's an eight episode and it says first season. So I don't know if they're, they're going to bring it back in any capacity. It is great. It is a horror comedy and it's a horror comedy in the sense of like a little shop of horrors, a Sweeney Todd, a pushing daisies. These are not going to be for everyone. When I say horror comedy, it's not like a cabin in the woods or an evil dead. This is very much a theatrical kind of self-aware oversaturated kind of otherworldly feel to it. But I absolutely loved it. Like it has like a, like a Tim Burton-y feel I'll say is kind of the best way I could equate it Um, where it is. um, And Eduardo Sanchez even directed some of the episodes of this. So yeah, it's a really tight first season. It opens with this woman on stage performing this absolutely bloody play where she's surrounded by body parts and she's pretending to be this character Dolores Roach and the audiences go crazy and she exits and she's in the dressing room and she's covered in blood talking about, yeah, I really channeled her. And you find out that Dolores Roach is this serial killer that she has made a stage play about and she's channeling, she's playing Dolores Roach. It's like a one woman 
the show. And everybody leaves and she starts to take her makeup off. And suddenly out of the shadows, the real Dolores Roach emerges and is like, everything that you're doing on stage is bullshit. I'm going to tell you my real story. You're going to sit there and listen. Mm -hmm. And it immediately takes you into the story of Dolores Roach, who is this woman who um, lives in Washington Heights with her boyfriend and she is having a great life and she gets arrested on kind of a built up pointless drug assaulting a cop charge that doesn't even really exist. Like she didn't really do it, but she serves 16 years for it. By the time she emerges, Washington Heights has been completely gentrified. The neighborhood is completely different except for an empanada shop that she used to shop at, um, that she used to get her empanadas from. She moves into the basement of it and basically it becomes kind of a Sweeney Todd with empanadas. Hmm. And it is, and she's a masseuse. She learns to give massages in prison. That's how she says that, like, that's how she got herself out of situations is even the toughest bitch she could, like, turn to jello as soon as she started rubbing her shoulders. And so she's giving mm-hmm. massages. So it's kind of like, you know, instead of a barber, she's a masseuse. Instead of meat pies, it's empanadas, but it's that same horror comedy theatrical setup. I loved the show. I love the podcast. I think the show is an awesome TV version of it. It is this, um, and it's star-studded. It's got like, um, even just cameos like Mark Maron's in it as their evil landlord, Cindy Lauper in it. Brian Fuller is like a theater critic in the first episode. Um, and I found out it's because it has such a strong Pushing Daisies feel. The showrunner was one of, I believe, one of the writers on Pushing Daisies. And so it's got, it's just got that feel to it. This just kind of bigger, larger than life, um, fantasy feel to it. But I've been having a blast with it. It is straight horror comedy. So horrors of Dolores Roach. No one is talking about it. So I'm hoping somebody else out there likes it enough to to keep it going a little bit and give it some love. And this is on Amazon Prime right now. Well, that's good because my last one's a streamer too. And really, okay, I have... I usually rely on you to tell me if a new movie that hits Netflix is any good. Cause to be honest, I think I'm basically done with like new Netflix movie. I just don't care anymore. And they're almost never been good. And I just don't even bother pushing play unless, you know, somebody really recommended it. Uh, last night I saw there was a new one on there. I was like, okay. And I looked on letterbox and there weren't any reviews except, uh, there was one glowing review. Uh, and I was like, Hmm, all right, maybe I'll check it out. And that is, the new remake, very loose uh, on the term remake, The River Wild. This is for you. Uh, this was one of the nicest surprises I've had all year. This movie is tight. It's taut. It's actually kind of ugly at times in terms of what's going on. It is not a real re- remake of Curtis Hansen's River Wild, but it is um, mm-hmm. a remake of the, they like they did take the script and they took elements of the the journey, but not the character stuff. It's a totally different story. Uh, the action directing of the, like them going down the river stuff is really good. Uh, I mean, look, it's not like, oh my God, it's the best film of the year. But I was like, I was like, okay, this is so much better than I thought. The reason I watched was because Adam Brody's in it. And Adam Brody's just one of those young actors. Or young, he's my age probably. But, you know, he seems young to me now because he was in the he's OC. He's a young gent. Yeah, he was in the OC. Uh, I've always, I just think he's been good in everything he's been in lately. Uh, in this, it's, I've never seen him play like the bad guy. He's the fucked up, been in prison kind of character, which was interesting. So it's a sibling uh, played by uh, Leighton Meister is her name. She's coming home uh, and she's a doctor. She's coming home to see her brother who's a bit of a fuck up and used to be a, kind of involved in the drug world and he, but he works at this river rafting place that's very successful and he's convinced her to come down on a weekend raft and she's excited to see him again she sees him there's these two British girls who are going to be on the trip and then the Adam Brody character 
shows up and she looks like, oh, she wasn't ready for this. And it's the best friend of her, her brother. Uh, there's clearly a history between her and this guy, but she doesn't kind of say what it was. Um, and they kind of let it slow burn. But, you know, the brother's like, it'll be fine. He's been out. Yeah, he's totally cool. Everything, you know, it's like, okay, great. And they basically, they go down the, this raft and uh, go down on the, on the raft kind of deliverance style. And as they go, something happens that changes the group dynamics and makes things super tense for the rest of the movie. I'm not going to reveal it. Uh, you're going to have to listen for yourself, but it was just like, it's been, I mean, it's been years for me that I would blind watch something on Netflix that I actually liked. And I don't mean that as a total assault on the company, like pickups and stuff. Sure. But when it says like Netflix on top of it, it's just, I don't know. It's rare. You never rare for me. Wow. Okay. So um, by the way, Adam Brody is your age. So, which, is just hilarious, you know. which is hilarious he, <laughs> he, he's killing it because he looks great but, i just looked it up he's your age but when i was watching the oc he seems like a kid so i guess the oc i was watching probably when i was his age yeah anyway um it is very strange but, but he look you know he doesn't he looks younger uh <laughs> you never watched hellhole that was the other netflix one that i was like this is amazing I know that was from last stuff. year this isn't a diss on yeah. i'm talking about everyone yeah. has their own relationship with streamers i watch a lot more stuff on amazon just because i like so do i think it is but like for some reason usually the ones that say netflix i just I usually I, maybe you get burned twice and then you're like ah um but this is a really good late night go in low expectations and have actually a really good tight um thriller um i remember seeing the original one when i was in high yeah, school totally. i mean that was like mid 90s yeah. and it was great so okay i'm i think in. you would like this I, I there's a few people i know when i was watching go oh yeah this is uh, this is definitely a few people will dig this movie um, I will quickly say, speaking of Netflix, Bird Box Barcelona, it was by no means my favorite film of the summer, but it did something different. Like it was very much trying to take a much different approach than the first Bird Box. And so in that, if you like that world, I, I at least enjoyed watching it. And I liked kind of seeing the different perspective and how it worked it. So that existed. Black Mirror, if you have not checked it out oh, yet, yeah, they were all yeah. reasonably decent episodes. Locke Henry fucking amazing it was like straight up serial killer like horror piece and i also really liked demon 79 is like full like conjuring a demon really really fun how one. many um, episodes was this new season because i haven't like started yet. okay I'm, i'll make that my next thing because i love yeah Mirror, so. i think it was five or six so yeah um lock henry was by far my favorite yeah. i know a lot of people really like beyond the sea that one wasn't as much of a thing for me but i loved lock henry and demon 79 and i will also say the other thing that i did a lot of this summer was read books i've probably got 10 different horror novels that i read this summer so far but i'm saving that for next episode because we're having an author on so next summer or next episode i will be doing my summer horror book reports um and give you kind of the the ones that i everybody should read and the ones that you know we're, we're just okay yeah i got a couple books but I, I i was spending a lot of my time writing reading this uh michael cimino biography which i just become obsessed with <laughs> because any anybody who lives like a lifestyle that is very mysterious i find always intriguing so uh, i did read one one horror book that i'll mention and i got one that i'm excited to read so uh, save them for next I'll week okay it. okay well, let's bring on our guests. I am so excited to hear from them because I'm part of the movie and I love everything they do. So let's bring on our guests for tonight. Well, 
Well, everyone, it is my esteemed pleasure to welcome our guests for the night. They've been guests on multiple iterations of our shows before. I think we last had you on when I was doing Nightmare um, University and we talked about aquatic horrors. But I am thrilled to welcome back Josh Miller and Steven Scarlatta with their new um, documentary that's now on Shutter Shark Exploitation. Good to be here. This is the voice of Josh. <laughs> Steve, thank you for having us. Well, plus they're podcast hosts in their own right with Movies Never Made. So yeah, that is, um, you guys have been doing this for a while now. Tis true. We're back. We're on a long hiatus wall. Well, I'd say we, but mostly Steve finished up Sharksploitation. But we're back in action. So what's the first film back? It was Jaws 3, People Zero. Oh, totally. Tied into the dock. And now we're also, (laughs) we just started last week, a three-part episode uh series on the unmade versions of the meg mm. oh there are unmade versions oh many unmade versions. oh, yeah. oh shit y'all so Jan Debat <laughs> tried to make one for a long time oh my yeah, gosh has yeah. anybody attempted hell's aquarium because that's the one that i'm like just giddy waiting for <laughs> well no just the first movie on the first one yeah mm. yeah Okay, so before we dig into shark exploitation, I have to get y'all's kind of read on the Meg too, because I seem to be the only person in the world who thought it was an absolute blast. No, Joe Lynch. Um, I saw Joe Lynch give it four stars, and he was unapologetic. And then I saw uh, what's the guy who started for Alan Jones from Fright Fest uh, called on Ben Wheatley to hang up his boots, basically that he hated it so much. So there's (laughs) polls out there. There's a poll. I have seen, because I literally, I took my kids opening more, like we went to a matinee, we went to like a 12 o'clock show on opening day, took my kids, I left it, I was like, it's not the smartest thing you're going to see this summer, but God damn it, I enjoyed it and shoved popcorn in my face, my kids cheered the whole time, Um, giant octopus scene, like my son was screaming, and then as soon as I post up, like, oh my God, I thought it was so fun, all I hear is, it sucked, this was terrible, so okay guys, <laughs> hot take from both of you shark experts. Well, I know Steve loved it. Have you seen it <laughs> yes. twice already, Steve? I want to see it in 3D, but it looks like tomorrow's the last chance I could see it in 3D because I only saw it. Uh, I saw it normal style, uh, but I loved it. I absolutely because I kept seeing the reviews. I'm like, oh, and they're saying the first half is awful and then the second half is good. And then I was watching it and I was like, wait a second. I like the first half. I was <laughs> So for me, it's like I guess I'm used to watching lots of Chinese monster movies and like opening scene is Statham doing martial arts. And, okay. I was happy. And then I saw like Jin Wu in that, in this like underwater mech suit doing something. I got even happier. And then 20 minutes in, I was like, this is a Chinese monster movie. And I got it so, is. and I got so excited because it's, it's all the things that are in Chinese monster movies, but they, but it was like a big ver- budget version of it. So dude, it was like, catnip for me i was so happy watching that movie that was my take as well even bringing in the extra creatures with no fucking explanation whatsoever Mm -hmm. just we're putting more creatures in it like that for me felt such like a chinese monster movie where suddenly like just a giant catfish comes out and not in this one but that's in a lot of it's a thing in chinese shark movies where they'll add in extra creatures too can you feel the ben wheatley of it at all that that was the thing i was curious about i felt Nope. No Ben Wheatley. Okay. okay. <laughs> but but that's yeah. neither in like a critique or yeah. just like I feel like he was either not allowed to yeah. be Ben Wheatley or he didn't want to. I mean, you know, maybe he was trying to prove that 
he could do something. But I, I expected it to be more like uh, Doctor Strange 2. I, I knew it wasn't going to be a Ben Wheatley movie, but yeah. I thought it would be the kind of thing where just every now and then there would just be a five minute scene that was pure Ben Wheatley, even though I had a hard time picturing how that would exist yeah. in a Meg movie. Well, so except the humor, maybe that. like Free Fire is really funny, like Free Fire, the comedy and the staging of the character. So I thought maybe the characters were shaped a little more comically. I guess or I can see some of mm. that okay. Free Fire specifically. I mean, like his recent film, I think it came out during the pandemic, High Rise. Like that's a much bigger budget kind of actiony sequences. But I don't know how you're going to get like Kill List or Field Mm-mm. in England into a Meg Two movie. Like, it's <laughs> or in just the Earth, not there. Yeah. <laughs> oh, or yeah. in the Earth, yeah. it does. It does have cool sequences, and you do mm-hmm. still feel some of the Ben Wheatley humor. Like a, there's a lot of kind of you know somebody says something and then the opposite happens. Type you know humor that I always felt was part of Ben. Wheatley. There's a there's a sense of kill list type dark humor along with it. Um, not quite as dark as kill list, obviously. <laughs> yeah, I think it would be hard because again, unlike Sam Raimi and Doctor Strange too, I'm not I'm not really sure how the Meg as a franchise could have allowed for a, a purer version of a sudden five minute Ben Wheatley scene where there's very little happening and just there's like a rumbling bass that makes you nauseous and all the kill list kind of stuff. <laughs> Hey, if it helps him keep making his own movies, because it did really well at the box office. Just, I mean, between yeah, that yeah. and Insidious Red Door, I just that's what the numbers on Red Door. And I was like, holy shit! Like that was blowing the doors. That, that was like the one of the past, number one films this past calendar year. It'll be curious how long this yeah keeps going, but kind of starting with Smile, yeah, just this entire past year uh, has been. It helped have some good ones in a row. I think there's a couple. You know, it did really solid. Uh, movies. Yeah. But horror has definitely been yeah. overperforming based on like analyst expectations. Wait, Josh, did you say horror's back? It's horror back. <laughs> horror's back, y'all. It's, it's back. Didn't go anywhere. So that was back. <laughs> no, that was um because I just come back. Yeah. <laughs> I just finished my horror class that I do every summer at USC, my big horror production class, and I had my because part of it is kind of like you know anticipating where trends are going to be and who's going to see what. And on the very first day of class, I had my students rank which one they thought would be bigger: Haunted Mansion, Meg Two, or Talk to Me. And everybody was kind of like, you know, Talk to Me is going to be like. A sleeper but i didn't even include insidious red door on yeah. that list and yeah, you know it's doing great yeah so, so yeah. just i mean and also it's like i know some people will shit on that in the sense they'll be like oh but it's still ip but it's still but started as an original you know in-house very weird ip like the yeah. first insidious was a, and first two i like the second one a lot they're yeah. so wacky and and so it's just i don't know it's, we'll talk about it more at the start but all yeah. good things for those of us who love horror so yeah. Okay. So let's dive into some shark exploitation here because I've known for a long time that you guys are huge aquatic horror fans, specifically in the shark exploitation realm. But where did the idea of the documentary come out of? Of okay, let's make an entire historical piece about them. I mean, yes, yeah, Steve. I know where it began for me, which was just Steve talking, us talking about shark movies, and that Steve had had this idea that it'd be cool to do a documentary and. I just kind of felt it was one of those moments where I'm like, how long has Steve been telling people (laughs) at parties (laughs) that he wanted to do this? Maybe he finally just needs someone like me to be like, let's fucking do it. I'm in. (laughs) Let's get going. Yeah, pretty much. I remember telling, I think I told you when we went for coffee because for a brief second, we're like, can we do a book? 
And then, but then it definitely turned into the doc. I, I knew I wanted to do it after Dune for sure. Cause I, even at uh, Cannes, I was definitely bringing it up to people. But back then, I didn't know what to do with it. I just wanted it to be all a clip show. And then eventually, I, I just kept outlining it and outlining it. Then I figured out the Peter Benchley angle and then talking to Josh. And then, of course, it was after, and, and Jim also. Jim was, Jim I was Coons, driving around with DP. Jim. Yeah, Jim, our DP, Jim Coons. I was driving around with him doing shoots for our novelization doc. And he, I think he just got tired of me talking about it. He's like, dude, I will shoot it. Just set up the interviews. And so it was just the merging of these three things, Josh, Jim, and. So the lesson out there to aspiring, aspiring filmmakers is just pester all your friends. aimlessly. Yeah. <laughs> Surround yourself with like, action. Fine, Steve. <laughs> yeah. yeah. People push. Well, I remember having Steve. Uh, I remember when you came on one of my favorite early, early episodes of my other podcast, Pure Cinema, and we did ripoffs. And I remember a lot of shark films were on your list, a couple that I hadn't seen at the time. Uh, and so I've, I've been excited about this for a long time, but I, I wasn't involved in this. And I, you know, watched a couple weeks ago. We haven't really spoken. And I thought Becca was great. And I thought all I thought the talking heads were used better than I'd seen in any film for quite a long time because they all had something to add, not just they weren't repeating the same bullet points and they weren't all the same type of person. You had academics, you had marine biologists. Uh, but what I really appreciated was it wasn't what I expected, actually. I thought it was going to be I would love it because of all the deep cuts kind of film. Right. That was my expectation with you. Instead, it was actual historical context was so strong. And the mm-hmm. storyline, I, I I knew half of that I did, had never thought about, like how why these films outside of Jaws phenomenon. My brain had never gone, oh, but then what happens in the next phase? And then the next phase. And it was so well laid out like that. So when did the, I guess, the structure of what this film, because you could go a million ways with it. When did that start to emerge? I feel like it was, because, yeah, I mean, Steve's got all these movies in his head already. And I feel it was like very early on, just when I was, you know, trying to do my job of being like, well, so what is the movie? It's easy enough to say, let's make a movie about shark movies. But, you know. Yodorowsky's Dune had a beginning, middle, and an end. Like, it's obvious what that... I mean, there there could have been a mediocre version of the same story. The fact that they actually got Yodorowsky to tell his own story is part of what made that so mm-hmm. special. But nonetheless, beginning, middle, and end. Shark movies don't have a beginning, middle, and end. We're just... We're talking about one that came out after the movie premiered. So, um, mm-hmm. it was kind of like, what what is this? You know, as you were saying, the Peter Benchley and his arc of real, like, feeling guilty was one thing, but to me, what really stuck out with Steve was like, well, I don't want it to be one of those, you know, it was like a VH one special of like, I love the nineties, but we were just like, and this was jaws. And then this movie came next. And then this one, and then that one. And then you get like comedians and people to just like talk about the movies and say funny things. And sometimes those movies can be great. Um, if, if there's inherently more to it, like horn noir, you know, I think that has like a deeper thing, uh, or queer for fear or something like it. Th- there's more to talk about beyond just sequentially going through the movies. And I think it was kind of getting Steve to think about, well, how do I make that different? Yeah, no, totally. It was, yeah, I, I did not want to do just a genre documentary as, as Josh is saying, I think that one of my favorite document documentaries is a documentary called American nightmare. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Adam Simon. Yes, yeah. So that, that's that documentary I remember watching and it was like blowing my mind. Like, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. And um, we did a we did a whole list. Um, I 
put every shark movie ever made on an Excel sheet <laughs> that kind of became How an outline many? is over 200. So I think right now, what is it? Because I also have movies that weren't like, almost pre-production and all that shit. I mean, I'm close to, I'm definitely over 200. And I feel wow. a huge percentage of those yeah. are just from the past 20 years. Because once like sci-fi and asylum, and now as you're saying, these Chinese movies, yeah. you know, it used mm-hmm. to be that you were lucky to get a shark movie a year. And that, yes. then there's been phases where we've had like 12 shark movies a year. Let me ask you, is Toilet Shark on that list? <laughs> is Toilet Shark on this? You know what? I gave up after I finished I the movie. I don't believe. So I, there, I believe there, we there looked are, it up and found that it didn't. You exist. just gave up. <laughs> that was a horror. That's a horror trivia inside joke. That was yes. my. Okay, can gotcha. you pick the fake? <laughs> but, but I yeah. love that after that somebody looked it up. Yeah. And isn't there currently yeah. a Kickstarter it going to make? Yeah, Rolf Konevsky was on our team, and he was like, "You know what, guys? I'm pretty sure somebody's trying to make this movie right now." And there it was. So, yeah. And don't get it confused with Amityville Death Toilet, which is on no, don't get uh, Tubi right now. Never. Wow! <laughs> oh my yeah, gosh! But- of course it is. There's a mirror. There's a doll. You've got all the other things from the Amityville. <laughs> <laughs> Hell yeah. But yeah, Josh is right because we we pitched this thing to a lot of people who were not interested. Uh, Josh, myself, and Carrie Dignam Roy, our other producer who produced this awesome documentary about uh, the shower. The uh, psycho. psycho shower scene. Yeah, she was And awesome. Memory, the alien movie. Awesome. Right? Philippe, the director. Mm. Philippe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she, she works great. for or is involved with his company yeah, gotcha. in a lot of projects. Yeah, so she produced this with us, and we we pitched this thing so many times. And one person told, just kind of said, like, they don't even make these movies anymore. And then and I went and I started counting, and it's like after Sharknado, as Josh is saying, in like 2015, there was 12, 2016, there was 12, another 12 shark movies, 2017, eight. 2018, wow. nine, 2019, one shark movie, 47 meters down on caged. And then in 2021 is the record 18 shark movies mm. came wow. out. And at the most of the person who said that somehow wasn't aware of even like the shallows <laughs> or 47, yeah, like those like, are major box. Oh office. my God. I yeah. got so angry. I got so, it's like, it was like, <laughs> almost Steve like, doesn't get angry easy. Yeah. So. <laughs> it's like, no, because it was almost like it got to a point where it was like, are people meeting with us just to turn us down? And then, um, then I started making that list. So the next time I think no one ever brought it up again, but I was like, I was ready with this. I'm ready. Statistics. I got an yeah. email ready to go with yeah. this. <laughs> like you're wrong. It, motherfuckers. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of, but Josh is right. Like starting, after Sharknado is when they just started to like explode multiple movies, way more than multiple. Plus movies. the nature channel that the shark week and all these things have been never been more mm-hmm. popular. Right. I mean, it's through the roof. And I love that you all included that because that one for me, the one that you specifically focused on was, and this was like a huge game changer in shark week where shark week for decades has always just had coverage of shark documentaries this one's on tiger sharks this one's on this cool sharks in south africa that jump out of the water and then what was the year that they did the meg documentary um, like 2008 was... or somewhere around there um it was it was a while ago but that said suddenly they make this what feels like a mockumentary and kind of ghost watch style about hunting a meg But Shark Week presents it. This is coming from Discovery Channel. They present it in a very Ghost Watch style as if Megs are real 
and they're going to look for them and holy shit, what was that? And it's filmed, you know, real shaky cam. So if you're just a standard average viewer watching it, it's wedged in between these shark documentaries. You're like, wait a sec, did the discovery team just go hunting a Meg and find one? Like that's what it felt (laughs) like to the average viewer. And I remember at the time being like, this is wild. Like I was working at Fangoria and we covered it as a horror film. Um, And we never covered shark. Did you know it was fake when you watched it? I did, but that said, I don't think, um, but that's because I'm obsessed with this. When I saw Peter Jackson's Forgotten Silver, It was like 20 minutes into the movie when I was finally, I feel like they cut to a shot that this guy invented a camera that was run by like a locomotive train. And I was like, what the fuck? This isn't, what is this? (laughs) That one threw me. They all believe it every time. That (laughs) one threw me. I remember being like 20 minutes into it and being like, oh my God, how come we've never heard of this Who is this amazing man? Amazing man. No, that one, uh, that one I bought. You put Leonard Moulton in there and you just don't think he's going to be joking. Like it's Leonard Moulton. It must be real. It's Leonard Moulton. like he I'm doesn't sold. fuck around. That was the only disappointment I had with your film was no Leonard Moulton. I was like, man, where's Moulton <laughs> on Sharks? <laughs> Let's bring it. Oh, that would have been a good idea. That, that would have been interesting. <laughs> um, I want to ask all three of you a question, including Becca, because I know what it, I don't know exactly what it means to her, but I know what it means to her now. But uh, Jaws, the first Jaws film, first impact on all three of you when you saw it, what memory you have of seeing it for the first time and, and if there was any through line for you. Uh, because I, everyone's different. For me, as The Shining was the bigger impact. Not not Jaws, even though I love Jaws. But I'm assuming. Let's start with Steve, and I'm going to work Becca, mm-hmm. Josh. Uh, Jaws. It's like two memories. First memory was my mom never comes to the theaters, and she would she. I remember sitting next to her. This was during the re-release, and then the second time was my dad just came home from work and just grabbed me, and we drove to the mall, Sunrise Mall, and we just we walked because my dad would come home from work. And just be like, we're going to see Jaws because I hadn't come on HBO yet. It would get re-released. And we walked into the theater when the raft was was come, was on the beach. Uh, and my dad was like, oh, man, we just missed him. Eat the boy. And then we went and we sat down and watched the movie. <laughs> my dad would come home and we just go see it. And that's, that's cool. like kind of my my earliest memory of it. But it it made me, you know, uh, uh, like everyone else, obsessed, obsessed. Yeah. Becca? Yeah. Um, mine was my parents rented it on VHS when I was maybe four or five and we had, you know, just gotten the VCR. It was a big thing. And I remember what hit me the most was the opening shot of the girl floating in the water from below, like the truth, elastophobia shot, because when I've mentioned this on the show before, I grew up on the Shenandoah river and straight off of our dock. Like we didn't have like a nice gradual slope down that you could play in, like straight off my front yard. 25 feet down. And so we swam in it every day, but suddenly I remember seeing that shot and being like, that's what I look like to whatever is at the bottom. (laughs) And we have like four feet catfish and giant alligator guard and things like that in there. So I just remember having this, like, that's what I look like moment. And that shot even to this day, I use that film so much in my classes. I teach it screenwriting because it's like this perfectly constructed three act structure. I've taught it so many times. I still cannot watch that shot without suddenly going, fuck, that's what I look like. And even just last weekend, I was in the water (laughs) at the beach the whole time going, and that's what I look like as I'm like treading in 10 feet of water. So (laughs) yeah. Just sand crabs. Uh, I know. (laughs) Hey, hey, there were thresher shark reports in Pismo Beach while I was there. And everybody was. New York was a woman in New York. 
So there, the actual people came down while I was on the beach and they were like, we've had thresher shark reports. They don't actually attack anybody, but just let you know that we've had reports that they're out there. And you're like, what am Wait, I supposed to do? Thresher just- sharks, what gives Quint the, one of his scars, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. But they were like, they were like, they don't really, they don't like being around people. They're going to run from you, but we've had reports. So, and I was, how am I supposed to take that? I'm not going into yeah, deep right. water again. <laughs> Something unique. In the shallows. Hooper who had the thresher oh. scar. No, I can't remember. Oh, oh by, the, by the way, you're going to be so psyched. There's a, they're trying to make an alligator gar movie. If you look it up on, if you look it up on uh, IMDb, I, I need to post it. Yeah. So there's a fake, there's a poster of it. They're trying to make it. So you were. I've been waiting decades yes, for you've this. Been, you've been talking about it forever. <laughs> you Much have. like Thrasher Sharks. As soon as you're in the water, the gar are fucking out of there. Like they don't want anything to do with <laughs> yeah. you, but they're there. So sorry. It's funny. Yes. Talking about that scene though, uh, quickly, I, what, the thing I start a lot of film classes with in the first year is I show the opening scene of that silently first. And because a lot of these kids haven't, you know, 19 year olds haven't seen it. And before I show it again with sound, I ask them what sounds they think they should be hearing right and like some of it's obvious like you know beach stuff and chatter and stuff but that shot no one's ever gotten close because what that shot does what that, i mean what is the sound of an underwater shot of legs right it's romantic almost like sexy it's got this like fantasy mm-hmm. like like it's it's so strange and i think it's what makes it's not the did it did it that makes it it's mm-hmm. that intrigue almost like a shark's being intrigued by a woman's legs that is just so mm-hmm. it's such a unique choice you know in the in a scene like that anyway um uh josh josh uh i mean as far as like the indelible things that stuck with me from the movie as a kid was in particular and i think some i'm forgetting if it might even be mike gingold or someone talks about it from in the, in the or doc of the shot where you can just barely see the shark under the water when he's mm-hmm. grabbing the boater. And then I think that's even the same scene where we cut to, you think you're watching the guy sink to the bottom, but then it's just his leg. Um, but my real, really, honestly, my strongest memory of that movie is that I didn't, I wasn't really old enough to see any of them in the theater. So I watched all of them mostly on like TBS and I, you know, I feel like when, I mean, really when any of us were kids, we're not that old. Um, the sequels were so reviled and especially like Jaws three and four growing up to people shitting all of them that I feel like I was unaware that the first Jaws was good. Hmm. I feel that it was still too, you know, now people talk about it as one of the great movies of all time, but I feel like then it was all about, you know, the, the jokes in back to the future of Jaws 19 this time. It's really, really personal. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I remember when I finally like watched it beginning, middle to end, maybe even rented it. And I was like, and this is probably like junior high or something. And I was just like, wait a minute. Like this is movies. Great. So that in my, that's really my strongest mind, even though I'd seen like the movie either in pieces, but I feel like there was a point where I couldn't quite remember what happened in Jaws one versus Jaws two, you know, they were similar enough that it was kind of like one big movie. Cause I remember when I fully watched it, certain things that I was like, wait, is, he does not attack a helicopter in this. And that kind of <laughs> the more ridiculous thing. Well, we're, we're part of a generation that was seeing, we would have seen the sequels more than the first one, but from the amount totally. like two, we've probably yeah, all yeah. seen two more than one, just because it yeah. played so much. I think you know? three was the one that I saw yeah. the most as a kid. I'm sorry. Part four. Cause that came out right at like my peak of like, mom didn't care what I rented from the video store. So I probably <laughs> rented four more than any other, but I had that same scenario happen with psycho where I had seen part two and three. So often it was, 
wasn't until like much, much later that I was like, I should watch part one, which never really attracted me at the time because it was in black and white. And when you're 12, that's not a thing. And then I circled back and was like, oh, it's it's actually like a classic thing. So yeah. Junkaroo, you've been to Junkaroo many times. Junkaroo yeah. many times. I like Angry four. Welders. I think four's got some I love really four. fun stuff in it. I, I like the growl. Yeah. I like it growling, personally. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like them all. <laughs> I yeah. just, because... You know, yeah, before, yeah, before I saw it twice in the theaters, I remember I was so hyped. So how beyond Jaws? So you guys definitely cover Jaws and kind of the hype and the amazing wake that Jaws kind of leaves behind it of, of this massive hype. But then we see this crazy onslaught of shark exploitation films. How did you decide which ones to include? Like, how did you decide to focus more on this one and not Tinteria or up from the depths or, you know, monster shark or whatever? Like, how did you decide which ones were the important kind of tent poles of it? Yeah, that's a tough uh, one. You can go Josh. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, I'd say it's slightly more of a Steve question. I was going to say, from my perspective, was Steve wanted to cover every single shark movie ever made. <laughs> yes. Um, and then I'd say two reality, well, three realities came in. One, and one of the struggles in getting the interviews for this is, as we're talking about, like, once we were early, realized early on that we needed to ask the interviewers more than just talking about their movie, but then we interview subjects. So we would try to ask them, like, bigger pictures about sharks and other shark movies and some people had really interesting things to say but we also realized very quickly that most people who made shark movies that was not their like dream in life and they did not care about sharks as an animal they did not think about other shark movies other than jaws every single person was able to intimately talk about first seeing jaws and loved it because it was the biggest blockbuster of all time so might we could have been asking them about star wars or the godfather you know but uh, and that was when we kind of realized we needed to be getting like academics and, you know, that kind of thing. But then the other two. So that was kind of the first thing of just like, well, we don't even have information about all these shark movies. And then the, really the other big factor was length. <laughs> uh, we realized we did not want to have a four hour shark movie, maybe if it had been like a TV miniseries. But I also feel like just the nature of the subject matter, it's best served as a normal length feature. So it doesn't overstay its welcome, but, uh, but I mean, Steve did get interviews about, I mean, we had, we had, we could have done 30 minutes on just shark attack, shark attack two and shark attack three. Yeah. And ultimately <laughs> focused on Becca's favorite, just part three. <laughs> ah. Yeah. We had to keep one. Yeah. Dwindle it down. Like in front of me, I have two cork boards. One cork board was, each decade of shark movies. And then the right one was all the sub genres. And I got different colored yarn and I was tying it all together. My wife. Oh God, you it. totally red stringed the shark. Yeah. Movies. He's got a conspiracy oh my God. board. Oh God. Like he's then trying my- to catch a serial killer. Yeah. And then my wife came in one day and was like, dude, you've lost it. And then I was, you know, <laughs> Make sure I was, you take a picture of that before you gone. finally it, take it down. Steve. Now, now it's the new, it's my new outlines. Unfortunately, I wish I did. It was, my wife was like, dude, you've lost it, you know, and you got to stop. But yeah, I had, oh my God, my wall was just covered because I need to do this. And, and then Josh and Carrie and the editor were like, dude, because every it was almost like every movie I wanted. I'm like, no, 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 we got to cover that. And so it ended up just being like, okay, what's the main 
cultural relevant shark movies. And so I kind of did a color coordinating of these ones have to be in it. Like Sharknado, Mega Shark, First Giant Octopus has to, Open Water has to, Deep Blue Sea has to, The Jaws franchise has to. And then whatever I can get in there as bonus pain, I can like slip in. Like, you know, you'll thank God for Rebecca. She can drop in some cool ones, deep cuts and have someone else. And so we can just show quick pictures and stuff like that. So that, that helped a lot. You were awesome, Rebecca. Thank you, by the way. I don't know if I thank you. I don't know if I thank you enough, but yeah. You gave me a reason to rewatch a tunk (laughs) and anytime you get a reason or a tank, I don't even know how it's supposed to be that is the Bollywood Jaws musical, which is quite brilliant and has yeah. um, an entire singing sequence right before somebody is is brutally killed in the water. It's amazing. So what it's caused beautiful. you physical pain, uh, Steve, to omit? What like for you personally, as as a as someone with uh Tintorera <laughs> poster behind you, which I always like to say, come for the sharks, stay for the costume changes. That's my tagline for that movie. I love it's always like it's a threesome with a shark. I love, I love every scene. They're wearing different costumes <laughs> and it's very stylish. It's a great movie. Um, but you you've introduced me to some pretty great deep cut, like you know, weirdo ripoff shark movies. So I'm curious which ones leaving on the floor was was hard for you personally. Oh, it was probably it was definitely bait and it was Shark Night 3D because we had Rebecca talk about some awesome stuff she talked about she she cut she talked about the cookie cutter shark i got david schiffman to talk about the cookie cutter shark because there's real life cookie cutter shark attacks and i had it all and i had to lose that and that killed me um yeah like uh there there is a bunch there's just too much i want to go through wait tell the audience (laughs) because not everyone has listened to our show for the whole time we've been doing it tell them about bait because i i'm with you i think bait's one of the best of these new cycle like because i'm not somebody who'll watch anything like i won't just watch the sci-fi originals and stuff but when i saw bait i was like holy shit high concept ridiculous totally worked for me uh let them know a little bit about that one just in case yeah, it's part of there's multi subgenres in shark movies. And this is part of like the natural disaster subgenre about a, a tsunami that strikes and leaves survivors in a supermarket <laughs> and some in a parking garage with a shark <laughs> hunting them. And uh, the Chinese just remade it as oh. Escape from Shark. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Escape yeah. from Shark. So the original Escape was Australian, shark. right? They had like Sharni Vincent yeah. and people like that. Yeah. yeah. It's basically the mist, but instead of a fog <laughs> full of Cthulhu <laughs> creatures, it's sharks. That both <laughs> exactly. And I reached out to the director and stuff. They never got back to me. And I, I was bummed because I try, you know, but that, that one, it just seems like a lot of people love it. And mm-hmm. it seemed like, you know, and I wanted to do like a natural, I wanted to do an environmental section, but I just couldn't get to it and all that. So that, and that it was tough because it's easier to talk. Again, we would ask everyone to talk about their favorite shark movie. <laughs> it's it's easier when something like Deep Blue Sea was clearly like a major point on the like timeline and evolution of shark movies and kind of impacted or, you know, open water in particular. Oh, like, you know, people can talk about how that movie influenced their movie. And I feel like bait, not enough people we talked to had seen um, and it was just hard to like where you'd fit it in because it didn't. We liked it, but it's not like that changed Ultra. shark movies after that. Yeah, and it's written if by um, Russell Mulcahy, right? So, yeah, yeah he's, he, there's like five. Oh, OK, on it, I think I it's like, like produced by him. But Josh is right, because at one point going through all the transcriptions and pulling everything together, it was the people that did talk about it. It was the same thing. 
bait that's good and then that was it uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but they didn't I mean, get any deeper honestly it was even hard to get the shallows in that that one was mm-hmm. just so big and because it was a huge theatrical hit it did influence there's so many shallows ripoffs yeah. now like mini budget ones but it was tough because we just didn't have we tried to get the filmmaker but he was in the middle of finishing up black adam oh. uh and we were on a real tight deadline getting things into shutter and it was just nobody said anything enough about it other than like i liked that movie <laughs> you know? yeah, i feel like same. we ended up using every second of meaningful conversation we had about it which admittedly is very brief yeah there's, there's a chinese version of the shallows called really? huge huge shark Huh. Huge <laughs> shark. Yeah, check out Huge Shark. It's 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 the I'm shallows. All these but, down. Yeah, Mister Grumpy. I feel shark. like one of the most yeah. fascinating things about the influence of Jaws, especially, is when it's not shark movies, but it's still <laughs> Jaws. Like people, so like obviously the Grizzlies, <laughs> but like I love. We just brought up race Russell Mulcahy because I was thinking Razorbacks opening is like oh my god just I mean, it's brilliant but it also just yeah. as jaws you know and oh, it's so beautiful yeah the one that i know when you asked me that question the one that i said is my favorite shark movie that is not a shark is orca yeah um i love that movie i still consider it to be the classiest of the the entire like shark exploitation subgenre for me is so classy yeah. it really um, is yeah I love that. the score it's got that gorgeous score like dito dino de laurentis and it's just the backdrop they shot it in this beautiful like seaside village and richard harris yeah, it's, yeah you got oscar winners and yeah it's just yeah i love that and it's such a knockoff where like you can literally like put the characters side by side <laughs> the sh- the orca cries tears at one point it's you know it's still campy as fuck but i just i find it to be so classy simultaneously but it's it jaws has like a perfectly replicatable structure yeah. uh and and we talk about yeah people like i think we bring up the car when well, i think i know we bring up the car in the documentary oh yeah but it's not even just like the killer animal movies it's it's really just the idea of a thing is menacing a town and like the local government is like but we can't cancel the blueberry festival because you know we need blueberry dollars because <laughs> I, I always i still contend dante's peak mm. the pierce brosnan linda hamilton volcano movie is a Jaws movie, but with a volcano. Yeah. Oh, that's even kills two level. like skinny dippers. Which on paper you'd be like, how can a volcano kill two people early in Act One, and no one believes that a volcano did it? But that movie figured out how. <laughs> it has the. <laughs> it has the. There was a. This was just a boating accident equivalent, huh. but in volcano form. Oh wow! I, yeah. I don't think I've seen Volcano's Pe- or Dante's Peak within the last twenty years. Well, now you so. can watch it with uh, Jaws on the mind. Yeah, was, <laughs> now I need that to classic this. period where there's always two movies coming out at the same time, right? It was that of Volcano, and I was definitely volcano, definitely right at the same time. Dante's Peak. Well, it was Deep Impact and, and Armageddon. Armageddon, and I like yeah. Deep Impact too. That was it's funny. Yeah. There, but I kind of miss those days where you'd be excited about a new movie and they'd always come out in couples. You know, I remember yep. that there oh, was right. right at the same time there was Repo the Genetic Opera. There was Repo Man, yeah, Repo, yeah, with Jude Law, and it was Repo Men. I guess that was it, and it wasn't a remake. It was actually the same concept of like organ harvesters, um, which was weird. And yeah, they were like simultaneous, and yeah, we just don't see that. Those were the days. (laughs) (laughs) The the funniest the internet. 
to me, I always thought the funniest of those was because I'm at least you're like, yeah, yeah, asteroid hitting the Earth. That's on people's mind because somebody talked about it, scientists or whatever. Volcanoes was, you know, po- we were getting back into disaster movies. But I remember there were two movies in the same year about the like sprinter prefontaine. Oh, yeah. That was his last oh, day. Yeah. Personal his best name. or something. There was two of them. I remember. Yeah. I, oh, one yeah. was no, you're right. Prefontaine. Yeah. And one of them starred Jared Leto. Yeah. I just thought that was so weird because that was such a like super niche thing. And most people didn't even didn't know who this guy was. And there were two different movies about him. So my question is always, and this kind of pulls it back to Jaws. Were these happening organically? Like, was it an Armageddon deep impact, both kind of being created in their own little bubble and coming into fruition at the same time? Or is it like a 1989 aquatic horror boom? where the abyss gets announced it takes forever to make and in the meantime like five other people are like well fuck let's do the same thing and therefore we have all of these almost identical movies releasing the same year so i I think all the ones we've been talking about just now were like they were too far in when they learned about the other one Mm -hmm. because none of them are of lesser like you know like with Tombstone and um, Wyatt Earp, it was like yeah. Wyatt Earp was this giant three-hour-long, super expensive movie. And Tombstone, they're like, even that one, though, I don't think it was like a mockbuster. I think it was just no. that they had it, but they realized they could <clears throat> rush it and get it out first. Because um, even like like yeah. Bugs Life and Ants, I remember yeah. those. Oh, yeah. Yes. yeah like those right. took yeah. like yeah. three years to make because they're CG movies. Uh, but you're right. Those don't happen as much anymore. They're happening like mm-hmm. every year in the late 90s. Maybe yeah, information sharing is too easy thing. now, it seems like. It might uh, be. I mean, uh, yeah. it, it, on our podcast, we just learned that when they announced the Meg um, back in the right, 90s, yeah. what, what killed it was Deep Blue Sea then got announced. Oh, no, no. Actually, the Meg got announced and then another movie got announced, TV show called it Extinct about another megalodon but then deep blue sea got made and then beat the meg to the big screen and then the the night the day that deep blue sea premiered on kate no the day the deep blue sea was released on hbo shark attack was 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 released and then you know so it's just weird like how that all but i think shark attack definitely got rushed because of deep blue sea so Uh, well you brought up the podcast tie it back to your guys podcast in case people don't know what is a movie, whether you've covered it or not, a, sh- a shark related movie that didn't get made a version that you would have loved to have seen that you've covered? I mean, or aquatic car in general, because I'm I, I've, I obviously there's been really cool iterations of, say, Creature from the Black Lagoon. And mm-hmm. you guys have talked about other Meg versions. But is there something that you were just like, oh, I wish that had existed? I mean, mm-hmm. uh, a be- episode Becca was on the at the Mountains of Madness. I know uh-huh. that's not officially aquatic horror but it's pretty damn close it kind of it <laughs> falls into a, a similar vein yeah and that then one, that one was such um you guys listeners you should go listen to that episode of best movies never made because that was just such an eye-opening one for me because you guys actually had a copy of del toro's script and suddenly though i'd been bemoaning why wouldn't they make this for years suddenly i'm reading it going oh i see why they wouldn't make this <laughs> yeah it's very like, expensive very uh, expensive not pg-13 in any capacity very niche horror stylings i'll say like it's not like a broad like vanilla playing at a mall near you type horror film um 
that probably would cost a hundred million dollars. So yeah, I, it was immediately clear why the studio would probably be like, yeah, yeah maybe not. <laughs> he still wants to make that though, right? I think I've heard him recently say that he, yeah, he thinks it, it could still I happen. Yeah, it's never quite going to leave him. I hope, so. um, I hope it does. It's pretty. It's a phenomenal script. The one yeah. we read. Yeah, but it's, uh, it's funny because a lot of a lot of scripts we talk about, even though our podcast is called "Best Movies Never Made," uh, they're not necessarily all movies that would have been amazing yeah. <laughs> but it's usually something where just like it would have been so interesting for the movie to exist and a perfect example is we just did national lampoons jaws three people zero which would have been an official jaws three but also a national lampoon movie <laughs> like it makes it's one of those things you talk about it and you're just like why would universal have ever gone for that so i guess it's not surprising that they ultimately killed it before it was going to go into production, Joe Dante was going to direct it. John Hughes wrote it. Oh, wow. Is it um, good? Is the script good? That's the thing is it probably would have gotten better. I mean, granted, this was Joe Dante coming right off uh, Piranha. Mm. So I don't think he would have quite had total power to, you know, to argue against National Lampoon right after Animal House made like. I mean, Animal House made like the same amount of money as like Jaws and Star Wars. It was an R-rated college comedy. Yeah. So they had a lot of power. And obviously, Zanuck and Brown still had all the power in the world from Jaws. Um, I think it could have gotten better. It's definitely not as good as you would hope hearing all the names involved. But it's also just imagining that that existed, that that's one of the ones we would have been watching on TBS <laughs> growing up um, and now it would be hard for anyone to believe it ever did get made. The pro main problem, my complaint is, is that it's not a horror comedy. Mm. It's just a comedy comedy mm -hmm. that kind of has some shark stuff in it. I think it would have been really funny if they'd done a full-on hilarious comedy full of wall-to-wall -wall shark attacks. But Yeah, there, there is a funny scene when they open up the shark on the dock and they keep pulling stuff out of it. You know, they, they did that. Um, in it and one of Josh's favorite things in that was they pull out a goldfish in a bowl <laughs> with water, well, like, with water in it <laughs> with so water somehow, in it. somehow it never tipped over uh, while inside the shark the whole time yeah they just keep pulling stuff out there's moments in it that are, are hilarious though because it's uh, a great idea that in a way the super short summary of the movie is not actually what the movie is but the basic idea is that um much like the plot of a Jaws movie, an actual shark is plaguing the production of the shoot mm. of Jaws 3, and the studio doesn't want to shut the movie down. Um, but it's it doesn't qu it's not quite actually what's going on, but I feel that's the basic version. That's but just that really saying, fun. Yeah, saying that out loud, I'm like, that movie would have been amazing. That's, that's a great log line. But that yeah. would be funnier after four, three, four, and five. I think, you know, that, they literally say that on the podcast. I think it came too soon. Ah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, mm. Because they're just cracking jokes in it about Jaws 2. Yeah. <laughs> when really they should have been cracking jokes about like it. It should have been it should have been coming or like that should have been Jaws 5. Yeah. Actually, they should have waited until the mm. franchise had run itself into the ground. Yeah. And then yeah, done a weird comedy. Yeah, there's a running joke where it's like, this is already better than Jaws 2. You know, yeah. they say stuff like that. And but Steve and I are like, but Jaws 2's good. Yeah. Jaws 2, yeah. Oh, my gosh. There was, there was one aquatic horror thing I found in a newspaper, and there was like only one line about it that I got. I'm just fascinated. I think it was like back in 76, and it's I'm reading it right now. Piranha. This is before Joe Dante's Piranha. Piranha, the story of a nut who slips piranha fish into swimming pools Ooh. of the wealthy. 
That's it. Of the wealthy. <laughs> yeah, wow. that's it. That's the only log line. It never came out. And it I'm never just... came out. I mean, it's and the I... opening of Wednesday now, but that's yeah, yeah. it. That's... This is 1976. And I'm like, what is this movie? And I can't find anything that's else. That's closer to it. a bone. Larry Cohen's bone yeah. with a rat, you know, <laughs> but. Or even, um, you know, this brings back to what we were talking about with two movies kind of coming out simultaneously, where we see the William Graffy Mako film being made simultaneously to Jaws and it actually kind of beats Jaws but that's a similar setup where it's somebody mm-hmm. kind of a revenge film that's using sharks and uh, in that case yeah. using piranha I also yeah. realized we did an episode uh, with David Bruckner came on to talk about his Friday the 13th movie that never happened I, I, that was a good episode uh, by Nick Antasca and I wouldn't call that aquatic horror but it really plays into the like Jason Friday the 13th 6 and 7 like him at the bottom of the lake mm-hmm. element. They do a oh. lot with that. Yeah, that's a gr- that was that's one of those ones that they could still make that script. Mm. That's what drives me crazy. I think Good. one I think one woman, well, because it takes place during the daytime, and one woman is just hanging out in the in the lake, watching it all happen and hiding there, and then eventually he gets her. But man, that is a that script is in oh my god, I wish they'd still make it. It's so good. Was that the found footage oh. one or a different version? Uh, a different one. It was a, a 3D one. one. Right. Okay. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. I remember oh, it, the difference. Yeah. There's, there's not a lot of so many different Friday the 13th pitches, pitches yeah. that mm-hmm. everybody comes in on. So yeah, that's, I'm glad that that one exists. I hope it gets oh, made. I, I do love too. the team. Um, oh, God, I wish, so I wish they just made them all. Cause yeah. it's like, yeah, we would do it every yeah. year. That's what's great about the eighties ones is they clearly put barely any thought yeah. into what the next one was going to nope. be. Cause they had to crank them out so quickly. Yeah. Too much. I remember now. when, they wanted Jason in the snow and we all, you know, like there was oh a bunch God. of us. That I still don't understand that. how they've made so many Friday the 13th movies and we've never seen him walk out onto a hockey rink. And it could just be the opening, like the right? Obvious- <laughs> <laughs> you could do it as the opening and then the snow could thaw and then you cut the summer and you're in. It's so bizarre that they've never yeah. done it. Um, while- see him encounter a goalie. That's all I need. While we have uh, all of you on here, I think everyone needs to give me, uh, let's give everyone a shark wreck. Any movie. That you, whether it's in the dock or not, everyone give one shark film wreck just so people have something to dive in after you've seen the film on Shutter, and you need more. Steve, what are you recommending? Oh my god, that's hard. You get one. Um, you have a list of two hundred thirty. You get one. First thing that comes to your mind. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, oh, I would say that um, the one. I can only do one. All right, I'd say I think deep. Yeah, yeah. I think one. Deep Blue Sea three oh. that came out a couple of years ago is awesome, and it was um, underappreciated when it came out because I think I don't think the second one people were impressed with, except that one scene when the shark swims by and listens in on a conversation. <laughs> I think that's the one memory of that one. But but part three I thought was fantastic and. Were there stars on that one? I, I didn't remember. I so. remember that. Oh my gosh. Is that the one where it's set on like the island that's being yeah. flooded by global yes. warming? It's so fucking good. Right? It's, it's such a good movie. Yeah. No one talks about it. But it's man. Great. Yeah, it is. I would definitely recommend that. That's it hard. It gave me yeah. vibes of uh, uh, co-written by our friend Mark Gottlieb, I believe. Planet of the Sharks, which is kevin costner's water world but <laughs> it, oh, mark Atkins. that where sharks have eaten all the fish in the world so now their only choice is to jump out of the water and pluck humans off of floating cities oh, wow. uh, that's not my recommend i did yet. not know that existed so, no yeah it's, fun. Of the sharks. it's a fun one planet of sharks 
No, I I absolutely love Deep Blue Sea three. I'm so glad. Oh, wait, how how many one. did they go up to Deep Blue Sea? That's it. Okay, part that was the last one, but it was surprisingly smart. Like that was the yes. thing is it wasn't just like a, a sequel, shark sequel. Like it had its own agenda and storyline, and and was just good. Yeah, because there's so many of these movies, but then when you watch one that's good, you're like, oh my god, this is good. Yeah. You're so happy. <laughs> you know, it's totally so. true. Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to um I'll say The Reef 2, mm. which is a weird one, but um that one came out probably last year and I it's not as good as some of the other ones, but it had some really good jump scares. And if I can get still freaked out by a shark jump scare, I'm in. And I I'll do a deep cut as well um if I'm allowed. Um and I'm going to go with Monster Shark mm. just cuz it didn't get mentioned in the documentary and I get it. It's not a great movie, but I'm kind of fascinated by it cuz it's about it does something different than a lot of the shark exploitation movies cuz it comes at the end of the cycle. Um, this is like 80s plus it's Bava. And so it's oh, it's got kind it, of yeah. this, this Italian street cred behind it, but it's supposed to be this prehistoric shark thing. And it's got like messed up teeth, but it's this very much like rubber thing floating on the surface of the water the entire time. But it's got like, sometimes they shoot from inside its mouth. Like it's, I find the movie fascinating. It's not the greatest shark film you're ever going to see, but there's something interesting about it. All right, Josh, you can't cheat like she did. <laughs> oh, <laughs> uh, deep cuts is what we I do know, here, I sir. Know, I know. We could have them on forever to talk about deep yeah, cuts. You, you are correct. <laughs> I'm also going to go with one that we didn't feature in the doc, uh, especially because, uh, well, Steve and I just started a Patreon for our podcast. So we want you to listen to those. But in part, I think we like the Patreon because our podcast is so specific that now on our bonus episodes, we can basically do this and just talk about movies. And inevitably, we did our own kind of shark episode and it caused me to rewatch uh, the TV movie Red Water starring Lou Diamond Phillips oh. and Coolio. Oh. Um, and it was so much better than I remembered, I think, because at the time I was comparing it very much to Deep Blue Sea and like the level of effects they have in that. So it just felt like kind of cheesy to me. But now we've gotten so far down the kind of like asylum sci-fi rabbit hole where they often don't even build a cheesy looking rubber shark that it was just kind of excited to see something that they did before a TV movie had the money and technology had proved enough to just have wall to wall CG. And it's a very weird plot because it involves like gangsters and stuff. Uh, oh, it's, it's great. You're, you're so yeah. right, man. And who doesn't want Lou diamond Phillips? Come on. And Coolio. No, I, I highly recommend that too, because I was the same way when it came out, I was looking at it a little like, ah, you know, I was I was judging it and then I rewatched it not that long ago and I just fell in love with it because it's like practical effects and it's on Tubi right now because a while back, like a year or two back, you couldn't find it anywhere. And now it's on Tubi. So there is a lot of shark films on Tubi right now. Um, I was even mentioning right at the top of the show that my students have recommended Shark Side of the Moon, um, which is apparently also on Tubi. So, yeah. And that's where you find most of your awesome Chinese shark films as well. We yes. love yeah. Tubi. Yeah, Tubi, Tubi rules. Amazing. And Shark Side of the Moon is directed by the guy at Asylum that does all the shark effects. So they gave him a movie to direct. And that movie, I love it. It's total WTF movie. It's gr- I loved it. I was so glad you guys featured Ghost Shark as much as you did, by the way. <laughs> uh, that does not get enough love. Sorry. 
sidebar. Yes. I'll end with, uh, in, in terms of the deep cuts, uh, the one I, I remember telling you, Steve, when I saw this, it became one of my favorite movies and my favorite like pre-Lebowski characters. But if you're a fan of The Visitor uh, and you like Franco Nero playing Space Jesus, then the shark hunter <laughs> has just the most energetic <laughs> opening I've ever seen to a character. Dude, that's you the know? most Elric Kane movie I, ever. I, I fell in love with it. It's like one of my favorite <laughs> Dude, movies. That's like... It's Enzo Castellari, who did ripoffs as well, other ripoffs in The Shark. Yeah. But it's just like literally Franco Nero with the big that's... beard jumping off like he's chilling out in, in a tree and he sees something and he just jumps out does a dive roll kevin yeah. McAllister's, and then he's like a shark hunter who's just actually lebowskiing until he can figure out where this uh missing uh treasure so it's really a treasure hunting movie but it's just one of those ones i had never even heard of it when i watched it and i'm like how is this not talked about by everyone this is a great character great movie but yeah so many movies still lost to time man I hadn't yeah. heard of Night of the Shark till you told me about that one. And that's and on R.I.P. Treat Williams. Screaming, fuck you, Shark. Fuck you, yeah. Shark. Yeah. yeah. That's a fun one, too. Yeah. But they are always fun. Excellent. Always fun to get these discoveries. I love talking to you guys about these. And Patreon, for people who don't subscribe to ours or yours or any, I think what, what we all hit at is at a certain point, if you do a podcast long enough, there are certain <laughs> structures that you kind of have to adhere to. You have to follow. Like your brain wants and, to go to yeah. weird shit. That is where Patreon is. And and I really think uh, as a creator, I have so much fun when I do those. Yeah. And it's not just a money-making thing. I think it's a really great way to support people to keep doing these things. So I hope people. That's yeah. where we, yeah. we always stop our, we, you know, we allow ourselves some tangents because we don't want to kill the conversation yeah. and we don't really edit our shows. But at some point, we're just like, why are we talking about the Giver 2 so much in this, <laughs> I can't stop in this episode <laughs> about some other unmade movie? So we'll, you know, we'll, we'll steer it away. But we're like, now on Patreon, we could have a whole episode about the Giver 2. Oh, That's where yeah. we are. Like, if I talk about Satan's mistress here on the regular show, I'm always <laughs> like, somebody is turning this off right now going, what the fuck is she even talking about? But over at the our Patreon show, I'm like, okay, guys, we're doing 15 minutes on Satan's oh, yeah. mistress. Let's go. Nice. So, yeah. yeah, It's the good stuff. That's good stuff everywhere. But yeah, thanks, guys, so yeah. much. And, and really, again, great film. I haven't really talked to you since uh, seeing it, Steve, but really, it's... it's oh, I know. We haven't tight. talked in forever. It, it's, totally. it's really strong and just like, I love to learn something about stuff you kind of know, but you don't have the thread to pull it together. So that's a great, a great yeah. way to do it. So well done, guys. So I, I, I appreciate it. Like, you know, I was very lucky. Rebecca rules and then i was happy jim, jim coons yeah can't thank him enough and josh and carrie i mean i was very lucky to have cool people to come in and and the thing was i had we had to hide the title from like the sh from the marine biologists and all the filmmakers you know they didn't see the title until they signed the release form i had to be sneaky but because i didn't want to scare people off because yeah. we wanted to let people know like yo this isn't you know we're, we're trying to do something a little different. And so I'm, I'm very humbled that people are enjoying it. Yeah. So what is next for you guys? Like Steve, I know you're on to another documentary or one that you've been working on throughout this. And Josh, do we get another Sonic movie new coming up? I mean, it was it's supposed <laughs> to start shooting at the end of the month, but now uh, okay. the actors are on strike as well. So, yeah. wow. Oh my oh, gosh. Man. And Steve, can you tell us about the next doc that you're working on or what you kind of, what's your research baby right now? Um, I'm producing a documentary that Jim Coons, who I brought up multiple times, is directing about uh, movie novelizations. Uh, we are still working away on that about, you know, the world of movie novelizations, how, you know, it's a 
authors are forced to take a 90 page script and expand it into 300 pages. And it's a really look down upon <laughs> trash literature thing. So we are doing a documentary on that. And, uh, and then Josh and I, are, of course, are doing our podcast and I'm researching hopefully the next thing I'm going to direct. But in the meantime, I'm producing that for Jim, who is directing the novelization doc. I, I, that one I've been so excited about for so long, knowing you yeah. guys are doing that. But I'll tell you, it's such a mysterious world. I work with a guy, have for years, right? Like we're talking like seven or eight years. I'm working with this guy side by side. He's a screenwriter. And then just out of the blue, if you like, like a couple of months ago, he goes, yeah, I did the, I also did a novelization once for, for, for true lies. I was like, what? You did the true lies novel? And he did. And, and I read a bit at the start. It's fucking awesome. And it's so different. Holy shit. And so, but like, oh, I nice. think people keep it a secret. <laughs> like, that's what I'm getting. Yeah, I don't it's... think people are like lead with that, you know? So I think they're becoming cooler now. But when we started the doc, they just, you know, the thing was, it's just, you know, when I read Friday 13 part six, like when I was like in junior high, you know, and then years later, I would meet people and then start having conversations to the same people that read it. And they were like, oh, Jason was in school and you learned about his dad. And then it was like this thing you would just uh, bond with people when they read the same novelization as you did. You know, so I don't know. I've always found it fascinating. And the Jaws 4 novelization. of Jaws 4 novelization is like God. I love that yeah. one. Yeah, Perfect summer reading, right? <laughs> it's it's all about voodoo. It was the shark oh and the curse, and yeah, there's it gets fully supernatural, which I love. And we'll so, waive yeah. all Patreon costs to you. Uh, give you free Patreon for life if you send me Teddy, uh, the book version of Teddy Guy. So if anyone's listening, he has been trying <laughs> to find Teddy. that Someone. for we years. Are, know, we are sad. two. We are two. It's so hard to find. I think right? Collins I, found one. I thought Collins found one. I know. And he posted he... for like a buck or something at one of those things. And I was so mad because even on eBay once it was like $350, $400. Oh, I just want to read it because I love the pit so much and I have no clue yeah. how you would put that into words. Oh, <laughs> it's such a good, such a masterpiece. So that movie. What is the book like? Right. Yeah. I'm just curious. Yeah. But anyway, one day we will get there <laughs> together. Uh, well, Thank you guys so much for tuning oh, thank in to you. the show tonight. And we will talk to you soon. In thank the meantime, you. please watch the Shark Exploitation documentary now streaming on Shudder. And thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in tonight. Um, you can find us on our Patreon show, Deep Cuts, if you need to just hear a lot more about Satan's Mistress in the meantime. <laughs> and otherwise, we will be back in two weeks with even more aquatic horror. And in the meantime, y'all might want to read the upcoming, or actually, I think it's released now, book. Whale Fall by Daniel Krause. Thank you guys. The Colors of the Dark podcast is a Fangoria production. Producers and co-hosts are Rebecca McKendry and Elric Kane. Executive producers are Tara Ainsley and Abby Gould. Associate producer is Jessica Soff of Amir. Sonic branding by Michael Rodriguez. And, of course, our amazing sound engineer, Ernie Hurtado. 